Today's scripture comes from Galatians 5, 1 to 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you that this morning we have a message of freedom to hear. Uh, a message of freedom that indeed we, we need to hear if we're to uh, live out the freedom you've called us to. So we, Lord, we ask for ears to hear, uh, eyes to see uh, the freedom you've won for us, uh, legs to express that freedom as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Jake. That was okay. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm excited to be with you. I, I want to suggest out of the gate that, that perhaps we, we've got freedom all wrong. And you may be saying, who? Uh, us. Together, as a culture, perhaps we've got freedom uh, all wrong. All wrong. If we were to stand on the corner of, of Maine and Broadway and talk to people as they walked by and ask them, you know, how would you define freedom? What is freedom to you? I, I think, for the most part, it would be different in some respects, but, but mostly I think it would sound like this. Freedom is the ability to express my desires, my interests, However I want to, however I want to, without someone else stopping me or telling me I'm wrong. Now, I wouldn't be the first person to suggest this, but on the whole, I think as a culture, we've confused freedom and autonomy. Freedom and, and autonomy. Autonomy or, or self-governance says that you and I create the means by which we, we justify our existence. But is this true freedom? I think Paul's been showing us so far in Galatians, this isn't true freedom. In fact, he showed us so far that inevitably we find ourselves enslaved to just a different code, just a different system, different principality and power. Indeed, that's what Paul's talking about when he talks a few weeks ago about the elementary principles of this world. It seems to me, and again, I wouldn't be the first person to say this, that the autonomy, the autonomy that we've heard about and enjoyed hasn't delivered on its promise for freedom. In fact, I think it's failed us. And, and how do we know this? Well, every week, and perhaps you know this, every week we encounter advertisements and, and marketing campaigns promising us freedom, don't we? Don't we? All the time. Freedom from your mortgage. Right? Jokes on you, I don't have a mortgage. Freedom from your marriage. Freedom from your boredom. Freedom from your, your work responsibilities. Freedom from the dishes, right? Freedom from roaming fee fees. What if we've got freedom all wrong? What if we've got it all wrong? In his best-selling book, uh, Deep Work, uh, Cal Newport, he talks about how the Enlightenment, with its emphasis on the, the rational, autonomous individual, wasn't altogether helpful in satisfying that deep desire for freedom and, and, and meaning that we all have. And he writes this, 
in a post-enlightenment world where we have tasked ourselves to identify what's meaningful and what's not, an exercise that can seem arbitrary and induce a, a creeping nihilism. Maybe we've got freedom all wrong. Our text today then is timely. As Galatians 5.1 reads, what does it say? For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom. All of Galatians up until this point has been unpacking uh, the, the very first sentences of this letter. Do you remember how Paul began 19 weeks ago? Do you remember how Paul began? I know you do, right? He said this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And and we've seen, again, over the course of these 19 weeks that freedom, true gospel freedom, is freedom from having to save yourself. It's freedom from sin, the world, and the devil, not through sheer willpower, but through the work of Jesus. This is freedom. It's a work that we grab hold of by faith so that now we can obey and live in God's world, not as slaves, but as children. As we come to chapter 5 today, this is Paul putting an exclamation mark on the argument he's been making to that end. He says this, why did Jesus come to set us free, Christ City? Why did Jesus come to set us free? That we might live in freedom. Today I want us to explore that freedom in, in three parts. And if you're taking notes, here's the outline really simply. One, the charge to stand firm in our freedom. The charge to stand firm in our freedom. Two, uh, the warning if we do not. The warning if we do not. And then thirdly and finally, how are we to express or live out or or work out our freedom? How, How are we to express our freedom? So if you have your Bible, grab it. It's going to be helpful for us today. Galatians 5.1. If you don't have a Bible at all, there's Bibles at the back. Take it. Keep it. It's yours. It's our gift to you. Galatians 5.1, either on your phone or looking at your Bible on the screen behind me. Let's read that together. And Paul writes there, and look with me. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of, of slavery. Let's remind ourselves that each week we're looking at little pieces of what is a unified letter. What is a unified argument that Paul's making to the Galatian church. Galatians 5, 1 then, it comes to us, if we can think of it like this, as Paul's rhetorical knockout punch. I don't watch boxing, I don't even like boxing, but for some reason I thought of a boxing analogy here. If we think of a boxing match, and we can imagine these past four chapters as four rounds. And Paul is slowly and methodically working the body of his opponents. And he began in Galatians 1 by saying, listen, I'm an apostle. Not from man, not with a man's gospel, but but from Jesus Christ. In Galatians 2, we saw him defend that, right? Before the brothers uh, in Jerusalem. And then he said, listen, if you add to this gospel, if you add to this at all, it's not Jesus' gospel anymore. Slowly, methodically working the body of his opponents. And he says, listen, if you add to it, not only is it not a gospel, but it's actually bondage. It's slavery. Towards the end of the third chapter and into the fourth, you can imagine like a boxer picking up the pace. He begins to work the body even harder. You are enslaved under the law, but through the saving work of Jesus, you've been called sons. Through the redeeming work of Jesus, Galatians 3, you've been called sons. And now as we get to this this fifth chapter, or the fifth round of this bout, you can imagine Paul maybe is a bit tired, 
And he wants to deliver uh, his rhetorical knockout punch. And this is what he says. Here's the point. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He continues to say, because this is true, and indeed I spent the last 19 weeks, or we spent the last 19 weeks trying to tell you that this is true, how then should we live? How should we live? He writes, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And I can't help but think, and I think Paul wants us to think, uh, of that imagery that we have in our culture and as a whole, uh, of the the general, like, talking to his soldiers before a a large army. This week, to get myself, you know, in the right frame of reference for the sermon, I watched The Lord of the Rings like 14 times, and I did it for you, and so you're welcome. But we can think of that that image, right, of of a soldier or a general speaking to his men, and they have to hold the line or hold the wall. And, and, and if they lose it, like, all is lost. It's this imagery deeply ingrained in, in our culture. And so, like, a general writing to his soldiers, you can picture Paul riding up and down the line saying just this. Look, Christian, look at the ground Christ has won for you. Look what he's done for you. You who had no way of perfectly obeying the law, guess what? Christ has given you his perfect obedience. Now stand firm. Look, Christian, you who were enslaved and captive to the whims and desires of your sinful flesh, Christ has freed you. You now, in Jesus, through the Spirit, have the power to say no to sin. Look what he's done for you. And look, Christian, you who were facing death, an eternity of death, the curse of death, Christ has freed you. You have life forever in him. And look, Christian, you who found your righteousness previously in in your job, in in your your gender, in in your ethnicity, you who found your right standing in all these things previously, Christ has freed you from that. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what he said in Galatians 3.28? Saying, look, Christian, look, don't give up the ground. Don't give up the fight. Stand firm. It's militaristic language. And indeed, shouldn't it be? If you remember back to Galatians 2, how does Paul speak of our opponents? Right? Like insurgents. Uh, Paul is, is before the, the council in Jerusalem. He's before the men there. And, and some men uh, are there who Paul calls false brothers. And they're trying to force their agenda of Jesus plus Torah observance equals right standing before God on the apostles. And indeed, if we think about it, they're trying to change the trajectory of church history. That they're trying to change the gospel. And Paul describes these men using language of, of insurgency. Look at Galatians 2, 4 to 5 with me. Paul writes, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, what, even for a moment, even for a second. To them we made no, no concessions. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. False brothers secretly brought in to spy out our freedom. It's the language of insurgency, of enemy combatants. And their goal to put back on the Galatians a yoke of slavery. Now, now as anyone who knows me here can attest, I did not grow up in a quote-unquote rural setting. I grew up in a quote-unquote very much urban setting. 
Uh, and, and so I had to Google this this week. But if you see here, Paul looks at this language of, of a yoke. And again, this is uh, from my knowledge of, of learning about the yoke over the course of six days. And so if it's wrong, well, you can get mad at me later. Uh, but, but Paul says, listen, like it's like a yoke, this yoke of slavery. And this yoke is this wooden beam that would go across two animals. And together they would pull like a plow or, or they would pull like a cart or something behind them. Again, this is my, my urban understanding of a yoke here, right? And Paul says it's a yoke of slavery. The language of, of yoke as this specific descriptor of the law would have been well known uh, in Jesus's and Paul's day. But the Jewish teachers uh, would never have thought to call this yoke a, a yoke of slavery. No, it, it was simply a yoke that you placed yourself under, much like the person uh, who goes to UBC for engineering school places themselves under the yoke uh, of their professors and the schoolwork, and, and they learn, right? In, in the same way, that, that's how they viewed the yoke. But Paul, and actually Peter and Jesus, elsewhere in the New Testament, will tell us that this uh, this yoke of slavery, the law as a means by which to make ourselves right before God, uh, is exactly that. It's, it's slavery. It's a yoke of slavery. And what then are we to take away from this verse? Well, I, I think there are a few things. Firstly, and most obviously, in the same way the Galatian church is to stand firm, uh, so too are you and I. See, I think we readily understand and accept uh, that nations and indeed cities are susceptible uh, to hostile forces, right? We, we've seen this in history. People come in, they take over a place, or something happens from the inside out, and, and, and things change, right? We, we acknowledge this happens on sort of a nation-state level, but when it comes to us, when it comes to the sovereign I, uh, we, we think ourselves a little bit more impenetrable, don't we? We think ourselves immutable, impenetrable fortresses of, of sort of clear, rational thought. Isn't that true? For unaffected, we say, by the narratives, the influences, the, the rhetoric of our culture or those close to us. We, we think we believe what we believe because we came up with it. To change our mind, we, we think we'd have to be confronted with a, a solid argument. We, we, we think we know ourselves, and we think we have deep-rooted reasons for what we believe. If, if that's the case, if that's the case, why would David pray something like this? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I've used this quote from Nietzsche before, and I'll use this quote from Nietzsche again, but he said this, We are unknown, we knowers to ourselves. Of necessity, we remain strangers to ourselves. We understand ourselves not. In ourselves, we are bound to be mistaken. For each of us holds good to all eternity the motto, Each is the farthest away from himself. As far as ourselves are concerned, we are not knowers. I think this is true of all of us to one degree or another. We do not critically engage those things which capture our heart, which capture our imagination, and capture our fantasies. And slowly, over time, we give up ground. The author of Hebrews describes this failure to discern the messages that we are hearing. He uses language of of drifting, drifting. Unlike the soldiers lined up to charge their enemy, the battle for your heart 
The battle for your freedom doesn't happen in large, dramatic, uh, Lord of the Rings type ways. It happens in small, incremental drifts. Until one day you look up and you find that you are much further from shore than you thought. So stand firm, Paul says. Stand firm. And the second thing is this. Freedom in Christ is not to be confused with mere moral reform. It's not mere moral reform. Did you notice that Paul said this? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And what? And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the question we should ask is, how are these uh, pagan uh, Gentiles, how are they going back to a yoke of slavery? How are they going back to the law? Right? What are you talking about here? Uh, Tim Keller, he, he writes this. The Galatians had been amoral liberals, and now they're about to become very moral conservatives. And, and Paul's saying something we've seen time and time and time and time again in this letter. He's saying this. Listen, uh, pagan idolatry and, and liberalism is equally as slavery as mere moral conservatism. Mere moral reform. Both of those paths are equally enslaving. And as we'll see in just a bit, equally as damning. Elsewhere, Paul describes those who seek their justification on moral reform alone as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And Jesus describes such people as whitewashed tombs. Look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. I have no doubt that, again, still 19 weeks into our Galatians series, that there are some among us who are trying to make themselves right with God on the basis of their moral record, on the basis of their outward appearance. And hear the word Paul brings to us this morning. For freedom, Christ has come to set us free. Because the warning in our text is very real today. We've seen this charge to stand firm. But now as we look at verses 2 to 5, we see the warning if we don't. And Paul writes, and look at Galatians 5, 2 to 5 with me. Paul writes this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if you're new here, you you might read these verses and think them harsh. But but let me try to just help us understand what's happening here. I, I got married almost seven years ago. And on that day, I did a few things. I, I put on my suits, and I went to the, uh, the community center in Pitt Meadows. It was a luxurious occasion. Uh, and, and, and I stood before my wife. And I made a covenant with my wife in front of my family and, and friends and, and all who were present. And I said, I do to my wife. Now, in that moment of, of making a covenant with my wife, a few things were happening. Not only was I saying, yes, and I do to my wife, but I was also saying, right, no, and I don't to every other woman in the world, right? Is, what, wasn't that happening? I, I really hope my wife is doing the same thing, right? <laughs> Both of those things were happening in that one moment. Yes, and I do, and no, and I don't. The call to stand firm is a call to fidelity. 
is a call to, to faithfulness. And Paul's reminding us here that both of these things are full meal deals. And to faithfully uphold, enjoy, guard, protect, cherish the freedom Christ won for us on the cross. And for us, the follower of Jesus, to look for justification and freedom and, and belonging in anything other than the work of Jesus it is an act of, of spiritual adultery that is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. And for the Galatians, it was an act of, of spiritual adultery for them to add circumcision for justification. And for us today, it is an act of spiritual adultery for out of one mouth to say, well, we trust in Jesus alone. And out of the other mouth to say, well, I actually sleep well at night because of what I do and who I am and the way people perceive me. Again, Paul wants to see that there are two roads here. There are two roads. And these two roads, they never, ever, ever, ever intersect. There's no combining, there's no intermingling here of these two roads. The first road is the road of self-reliance. It's a road those false teachers were promoting by suggesting that the Galatians get circumcised. And circumcision, of course, is this initiation right into a whole system of thinking, of being. If you take this road, Paul says, Galatian church, you will be severed from Christ and you will fall away from grace. But there's another road. And it's the road of faith and the Spirit. Where we trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. And in doing so, find ourselves united to Jesus. So that now, Christ is of every advantage to us. See, see there are two options for us in this life. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Either Christ is of, of no advantage to you whatsoever. Or he is of every advantage to you. Either you have everything Christ has come to bring you, or you have nothing. And Paul is drawing a really clear line here and wants us to see it here in, in harsh, perhaps uncomfortable language for us. It is only the road of faith that leads to God. And it is only the road of faith that will lead to our declaration of approval at Christ's return. Look at verse 5 again with me. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In contrast to the anxious toil of the one who takes the road of self-reliance, the road of faith is marked by confident and eager waiting. Waiting. A waiting for Paul always has to do with the return of Jesus. Always has to do with Jesus coming and bringing his kingdom. The road of faith ends with our glorious welcome into the kingdom of God as children of God. And in so much as you and I are in Christ, our righteousness will be publicly declared on the day of Jesus' return, being found in him. Our, our righteousness fully formed in us. And the Spirit, Paul says, reminds us of this certainty. He acts as a seal of this certainty, encourages us in this certainty. The hope here is not like, um, gee, I, I really hope I have fried chicken for lunch today, right? Or like, I really hope that like it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's not like this, like, uh, maybe. It, it, it's a confidently assured, spirit-filled knowing that is a fruit of being united with Christ. So for those who toil on the road of self-reliance, let me ask, 
And I just want to ask today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask. All that anxious toil for what? What future vision do you have? Where do you think this road leads you? And maybe, as I did at one point, maybe you're slowly realizing that in a world where you and the sovereign I has all the power to say what's meaningful or not, that you're discovering that it's all quite arbitrary. That the world we've created for ourselves is empty and shallow and thin. What's really interesting about that book I quoted earlier, Deep Work by Cal Newport, is that Newport eventually has to come to a place where he appeals to some sort of broad, generalized, external, outside-of-him meaning or, or sacredness, right? He, he has to go there if he's going to tell the people who bought his book that work is actually somehow meaningful. Uh, you've seen these documentaries that are being produced these days, of, and perhaps it looks like this. Uh, maybe it's a, a woodworker, and they're building a canoe, and they take this piece of like ancient wood, and they're being filmed, and like Bach is playing in the background, right? It's this glorious thing, and they're shaving the wood, and it's in slow motion, and it's like this beautiful. The documentarian is is getting at something sacred, something transcendent, a secular culture that has done away with God, has done away with some sort of transcendent meaning, is is trying desperately to find something sacred, something meaningful. We see this in the rise of of artisan and and craftsmanship language. Our world is longing to have some assurance that their life and their work is meaningful. That they will experience freedom not only now, but in some way, in some shape, for eternity. Paul says that we, those in Jesus, those who trusted in Jesus and have trusted in Jesus and continue to trust in Jesus, We, by the Holy Spirit, have that freedom of assurance today. A freedom to know not only that our past, we said this, right? Freedom to know not only that our past is covered, that our present is covered, but that our future is secure in Christ as well. We long for that meaning. And now, as we turn to verse 6, Paul will tell us, well, in, in the meantime, as we wait for the return of Jesus, how do we express this freedom? How are we to live? No, really, if we look at our Galatians in our Bibles right now, uh, verse 6 marks a turning point. Paul's been, you know, boxing and fighting and, and making that rhetorical argument. And now in verse 6, he's saying, so what? So, so how do you live? If you don't live like this, under the, the curse of the law, n- now live like this. And in verse 6, Paul seeks to answer the question, if we're not justified by works of the law, why do anything? In verse 6, we have a succinct answer. Paul tells us, for in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what? What? Only faith working through love. In the same way, Paul has told us already, that on their own, as a means to make ourselves righteous with God, gender, money, ethnicity, those things, they don't count for anything in the economy of how we're made right with God. So too does he tell us here, listen, ultimately, circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't count for anything. In, verse, uh, in Galatians 3, Paul has told us, what matters is that we're all one in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 6, when he says this exact same thing again, verse 15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but what counts? What, what, what matters? A, a new creation. 
A new creation, he says. That, that's what counts. That's what, what matters. How are we made right with God? How are we made into a new creation? How are we one in Jesus? Paul's told us this whole time, by faith. By faith. What counts, what matters, what is important, as Paul's been saying all along, is faith. And this faith that saves us, that results in the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, expresses itself or works itself out in love. In love. And we must never confuse the order. It is not, as some have taught, that love and good works leads to faith. But that a faith that saves necessarily manifests itself in love and in good works. These good works happen, as we'll see in the coming weeks, through the Spirit. They are a fruit of the Spirit. John Stott, he's really helpful here. He says this, It's not that works of love are added to faith as a second and subsidiary ground of our acceptance with God, but that faith which saves is a faith which works, a faith which issues in love. Now, as I've said, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at this relationship between, between faith and love and grace and works a little bit more deeply. But for our time this morning, I want us to examine this dynamic at play in the life of one person. One person. Maybe you know Leo Tolstoy. Maybe you know him. Maybe you took an English class somewhere along the lines and you had to read some Tolstoy and you, you haven't picked him up since. Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist. Uh, maybe you also know that towards the end of his life, uh, Tolstoy became a, a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus read the Sermon on the Mount, was convicted by, by the ethics he saw in the Sermon on the Mount and the life that it portrayed, and he became a follower of Jesus. Admirably, Tolstoy took to heart the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, and he earnestly sought to live them out. But as his wife wrote, as she tells us now, Tolstoy's deeds seemed to come from a place of cold duty. As Sophia Tolstaya wrote this, there is so little genuine warmth about him. Don't you love if your wife would, would talk this way about you, like posthumously, right? Like after I die? He was trash. <laughs> his kindness does not come from his heart, but merely from his principles. His biographies will tell of how he helped the laborers to carry buckets of water. But no one will ever know that he never gave his wife a rest and never in all these 32 years gave his child a drink of water or spent five minutes by his bedside to give me a chance to rest a little from all my labors. Tolstoy himself was well aware of his shortcomings, well aware of, of, of where he felt short, and he wrote about them. But this inability to bridge the gap between grace and works, between faith and love, eventually led Tolstoy to being a, a crushed and defeated shell of a man. And he died by himself, an unhappy man, in a train station. Rankin Wilborn, he writes about all this in his book, Union with Christ. He rightly turns to us and, and asks this question. The point of Tolstoy's story is not... Don't seek Christ's kingdom with all your heart or you too will be devastated. For Jesus says in that very sermon, seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness. The question is, I think this is our question this morning, Christ City. The question is, how can we do that in a way that leads to life instead of in a way that leads to exhaustion and cynicism? The answer, 
Wilborn lands, where I think Galatians lands as well. We act in love from a relationship, a union of love. Here's what I want to do. I want to just read to us some passages from Galatians up until this point. And I want us to make note of a single thread of love that runs through this whole letter. And it might not sound like it at times. And Paul might sound mean or harsh or cold or cruel. But here for that, that, that thread of love. Galatians 1.15. Paul tells the church there, tells us today, that we were set apart before we were born. Also Galatians 1.15. Paul says that we were called by his grace. Galatians 1.16, we were justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.20, Paul says that we're hidden in Christ. Indeed, we can say that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Do you hear the thread of love? So now it is true that we can say, like Paul says in Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, what we are all sons of God through faith. Did you hear the thread of love? By faith, we have been brought into a relationship of love. And now, by the Spirit, we live out of that love. And and whether you're a follower of Jesus or not this morning, I think you can agree with me with this, this simple principle that love transforms. Doesn't it? Love changes us. We see this happen all the time on a relational level, don't we? Where the love of a spouse transforms their partner. Or the love of a friend helps calm an anxious heart. Now now hear me, Christ City. If our love, imperfect, broken, fractured, mixed motive love, can accomplish that sort of transformation, here's what Paul wants us to see. How much more so does the perfect love of God have the power to change us? To transform us? So that faith is expressing itself through love. And they're not two separate things. They're one and the same. Earlier we read in Galatians 5.2, Paul began his warning like this. Look, I, Paul, I, Paul, I, Paul, say to you. Now, I think what's happening here is a few things. I think, one, Paul's reasserting his apostolic authority, for sure. Listen, it's, it's me, Paul, so l- listen up. But the other thing that's happening here, I think, is important for us to note as well, too. He's reminding the Galatians who's writing to them. It's, it's me, Paul. You know my story. I have been as far down the good works road as one can go. So hear me. Don't do what I did. You can hear Paul's pastoral plea. And Paul wants something better for us. Jesus wants something better for us. For freedom, Paul writes, Jesus came to set us free. John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. A freedom expressed, not in cold religious duty principles, but a freedom of faith expressing itself, working itself out in love. And so Christ said, let me commend you one more time. Stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery or Christ will be of no advantage to you. And there are two roads here. Either Christ is of every advantage to you or he is of no advantage to you in this life and in the life to come. Because what counts, what matters is not cold religious duty, but joyous faith bubbling over, expressing itself in love. And would you stand with me as we respond this morning?
Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.